Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Kingdom Age. Father, we thank, we're thankful for your word. Help us not to change it. And we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. All right, well, we have finally made it to Revelation chapter 20, which is about the kingdom age. For the last 14 chapters, from chapter six all the way to chapter 19, we have looked at the utter devastation that's gonna come upon this world during what's known as the coming tribulation period. Seven years, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, God's wrath being poured out on the planet, uh, people who thumb their nose at God, who reject his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, hey, judgment day is coming because God is not just a God of love, he's a God of justice. Now, at, by the time the Lord comes back at the end of that seven-year period, what you need to know is that the earth is going to be a vast wasteland of destruction. But the good news is this, that during the kingdom age, everything is gonna change. After Christ comes back, he's gonna take a vast wasteland and he's gonna change it into something better. How many of you guys understand that the Lord loves to take something that's a wreck and make it into something beautiful? He's gonna do that for our world and he can do it in your life if you'll just let him. And so when the Lord comes back, he's gonna reverse the curse and he's gonna restore this world to its former Garden of Eden beauty. And the Lord is gonna reign with his saints for 1,000 years. This is prior to the new heavens and the new earth, which we're gonna see in chapters 21 and chapter 22. We're now in chapter 20, which is the kingdom age. And so the Lord's gonna come back, he's gonna establish a kingdom and righteousness and peace is gonna reign. Ladies and gentlemen, right now, when you read the news, it's bad news after bad news after bad news. But when you open a paper up in the kingdom age, it's gonna be good news and more good news and more good news. And finally, that's something we can clap about, right? I'm looking forward to good news and not bad news all the time. And so at that time, when the Lord literally comes back, our prayers will finally be answered. You say, what prayer? This prayer, which everybody knows. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Here it is. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on what? Earth. Earth as it is in heaven. Now, before we get to verse one, by way of introduction, I need to talk to you. This shouldn't even happen, but I have to talk to you about the length of the millennium. Okay, the word millennium is a, uh, an English word that comes from the Latin, milli, which means thousand, annum, which means year. And so the kingdom age will last for 1,000 years. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord has gone to great lengths to tell us that the kingdom age is gonna last for 1,000 years. In fact, he's so adamant about it, he repeats the phrase 1,000 years six times in the first seven verses. 
Now, if the Lord says something once, hey, we need to jump up and we need to go for it. He says this six times. I believe the Lord knows, because he knows the future, that much of the church was gonna mess this whole thing up, and so he makes sure John wrote it six times in the first seven verses. And of course, I wish I could end my introduction right there. Move on to verse one. And by the way, we're only going to, going to six verses today, so it's gonna be a long introduction. But the reason I can't get into verse one right now is because even though the Lord has repeated himself six times that the kingdom age is 1,000 years, there's millions and millions of people who say, no, it's not a literal 1,000-year period. And so when it comes to the millennium, Christians usually take one of three different positions. If this platform represents the kingdom age, the millennium, there are those of us, and I am definitely um, uh, part of this group, there are those of us who are pre-millennial. We believe Jesus is coming to the earth before the millennial kingdom. But other people say, no, 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 we can't really be sure if it's an actual thousand year period. And so we believe that the church is gonna usher in the kingdom age by spreading its influence for good, and then the Lord's gonna come. It doesn't have to be a thousand years, it could just be a long period of time. These people are post-millennialists. And then you have a group of people, a very large group of people in the church, and they say there is no literal millennium after Christ comes to the earth. No, there are millennial, a or a in Latin meaning no. Okay, and so of course, you know, some don't want to get involved in all the controversy. Can I just say something real quick? All right, I believe with all my heart that truth is a higher priority than unity, okay? I'll never, ever, ever, as long as I'm your pastor, put unity above truth. Because guess what? I am not a people pleaser. There's only one person I'm trying to please, and it's the one that I'm gonna stand eyeball to eyeball with and give an account for my pastoral ministry. Therefore, truth always, and I'm all into unity. I wish we could all get along and be unified. But hey, truth is a higher goal than even unity is. God's truth is God's truth, and we don't get the right to change it. And so some people don't wanna get involved in the controversy, and they don't wanna take a stand for what is truth. And so what do they do? They joke. And they say stuff like, well, I'm not a pre-millennialist, I'm not a post-millennialist, I'm not an all-millennialist, I'm a pan-millennialist because it's all gonna pan out in the end. Now, that, granted, is kind of funny, okay? But here's what I wonder. I wonder, are we refusing to take a position because we don't wanna cause division in the church? Ladies and gentlemen, truth is a higher priority than unity. Man, if you get that, that was worth the price of admission coming in here today. So we're gonna go through all three views. I want you to engage your minds. I want you to see why the premillennial view is the biblical view, okay? But we're gonna start with amillennialism. Charles Ryrie defines it 
He doesn't agree with this. He's just defining it. And by the way, he is the Lord for almost two years and he has an amazing uh, study Bible. If you don't have the Ryrie study Bible, you ought to get one. We have, I think, five left, but you can get it on amazon.com or Christian books, um, CBD. And so the amillennial view is the present state of the righteous in heaven is the millennium. <laughs> what? Something's wrong with that picture. But this is what over half the church teaches. The present state of the righteous in heaven is the millennium, but there is no earthly millennium. Now what troubles me about this view is that, hey, by denying a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth, all millennialists are denying God's promises of future blessing to Israel. And, and that is a huge statement right there. God has promised hundreds of promises in the Old Testament for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He promises them future blessing. But our millennialists say, no, 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 no. There is no literal thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. And so what they're basically teaching is that God's promises in the Old Testament for Israel are really being fulfilled right now in the church, in the church age. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is completely false. I'm gonna give you an example. How many of you guys have ever heard of the Davidic covenant? Let me see your hands if you've heard of the Davidic covenant. Okay, sometime later on this week, read 2 Samuel 7. How many of you ever heard of King David? Let me see how many people have heard of King David. Good. So King David, reigning about 1,000 years before Christ. And he's there. He's doing the best he can. He loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God decides to honor David. And what does he say to David? He says, David, your house and your kingdom will be made sure and your throne will be established forever. David, your house. What does that mean? That means your descendants, your genealogy. And your kingdom, help me out, you can answer out loud, what kingdom did David reign over? Israel. Israel. Please everybody say Israel. Israel. <laughs> okay? And so your house and your kingdom is gonna be made sure and David, your throne will be established forever. That's 2 Samuel 7, 16. Now that's an Old Testament promise of God. What did we just do in the last song during our worship set? We sang about God's faithfulness, that he always keeps his promises. Okay, and so the promise made to David in the Old Testament was confirmed in the New Testament. When? When an angel named Gabriel came to a woman named Mary and said about her son, he, and by the way, who's he? What's his name? Shout it out. Jesus, the son of David, he's in the lineage of David. He is gonna reign over the house of who? Jacob. For how long? Israel. What's a synonym for Jacob? Israel. Israel. And so Jesus will reign over Israel forever. And so one day, Jesus, the son of David, is gonna reign over Israel, and at that time, God will fulfill his future blessings, his promises of future blessings to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When is that gonna happen? It's gonna happen during a literal thousand years in the future called the kingdom age. Sadly, many Roman Catholic 
Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran, and what really breaks my heart, Reformed churches teach amillennialism because they've been influenced by an early fifth century philosopher by the name of Augustine, which we'll talk more about him in a little while. What's the bottom line? What are amillennialists saying? What they're saying is, hey, Israel, God's done with you and all your promises of future blessing, they're being fulfilled by us in the church age. What's the post-millennial view? It used to be very popular, not so much, not so much today. The post-millennial view, defined by Ryrie, but he doesn't agree with it, is that the second coming of Christ is after the millennium. And so people in this group say the millennium is not necessarily a thousand years, even though the Lord repeated it six times in seven verses. It's not really a thousand years, it doesn't have to be a thousand years, it's just a long period of time, listen to this, during which the church is gonna grow and the church is going to um, expand its influence for good all around the world. And as the church continues to grow, and as the church continues to expand and increase its influence for good, guess what's gonna happen? Things are gonna get better and better and better, and we, the church, is gonna usher in the kingdom age, and then after that, Christ is going to come, or so they say. This view is very popular in the 18th and 19th centuries, but then something dreadful happened in the 20th century. It's called World War I and World War II. And all of a sudden, Christians started looking around, and they, it dawned on them, hey, things are not getting better. Things are getting worse. And so not many people hold to this view today. Ladies and gentlemen, are things gonna get better and better on the earth? Please don't listen to somebody on TV. Don't get your theology from TV. Get your theology, your eschatology from the word of God, okay? Don't believe everything you hear. Check people out, check me out with the word of God. Okay, what does the Bible teach? Things are gonna get worse and worse. The reference for that, I'm gonna throw it out there and move on. 2 Timothy 3, one through five, and verse 13. That's 2 Timothy 3, one through five, and verse 13. And of course, the last 14 chapters of Revelation, things are definitely not getting better in the world. Okay, and so the good news is that, hey, Things are gonna get worse, but good news, Christ is gonna come and he's gonna make everything better. And that's the premillennial view. All right, so what's the premillennial view? The premillennial view is, I like to call it the biblical view, is that the second coming of Christ will occur before, pre, the millennium. He's gonna come back, he's gonna fulfill the promises that he made to Israel, He's gonna reign for 1,000 years because the Bible says it six times in seven verses. That's what he's going to do. Now, let me go a little deeper and encourage you to stay with me and engage your minds. This is why it's so important that you understand why the premillennial view is important, okay? And that is this. Number one, it's consistent with the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. That means God's promises to Abraham 
and God's promises to David. Number two, it's consistent with the chronology of Revelation. Number three, it's consistent with the position of the early church. And number four, most important, it's consistent with the literal method of interpretation of God's word. Now let's break this down. God made a promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. God, the sovereign one and only true God, reveals himself to a pagan named Abraham. And what happened? God gave him some promises. He said to Abraham and to your descendants, by the way, it's through Isaac and Jacob. What's the synonym for Jacob? Help me out. Israel. God says, I will make you into a great nation. By the way, when you read all the Hittites and Amorites and termites and all those ites <laughs> in the Bible, guess which ites still around? The Israelites. Why? Because God's got a plan for them. That's why. I will make you into a great nation. I will be your God. I will give you the promised land. And the promised land is not some ethereal, allegorical thing up in heaven. It's land on the earth and it's got some borders. The borders are laid out in Genesis 15, 18 and Joshua 1, 4. Basically the borders, according to God, promising to Abraham for your descendants from the Nile River in the south in Egypt, all the way up to Lebanon in the north, from the Mediterranean Sea in the west, all the way over to the Euphrates River in the east. That's a big piece of real estate. Now does Israel right now, the nation of Israel, hold all that land, yes or no? No, they're just a little sliver about the size of New Jersey on the Mediterranean Sea. But during the kingdom age, they will take possession of that entire piece of real estate. Why? Because God said it, that's why. And then God said, I will, um, I will um, in you all families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, I'm gonna send a Messiah through your seed, Abraham. Now listen to this, Genesis 17, seven, this promise that God made to Abraham, he says, this is an everlasting covenant. How long is everlasting? It's not conditional. It's not temporary. It's forever. Is God a promise keeper or a promise breaker? Right? And so what I'm saying is not politically correct, but who cares? It's God's word. Okay, and then his covenant to David. He said, your throne will be established forever. David, your throne will be established forever. That's the throne of Israel. Okay, and so that's, that's confirmed in the New Testament through Jesus, the son of David. The throne Jesus is sitting on right now up in heaven is not the throne of David. It's the throne of heaven. But when he comes back, guess what? He's gonna sit on the throne of David where he's going to rule over Israel and the entire world. Jeremiah 23, five and six. You can look that up later. Jeremiah 23, five and six. Now check this out. Premillennialism is consistent, number two, with the chronology of Revelation. You don't have to be that smart to figure this one out. All right, check this out. Revelation chapter six 
through 18 is the tribulation period. Chapter 19 is the end of the tribulation, culminating in the second coming of Christ to the earth. Chapter 20 is the millennium. You see that? Everybody, please look at me. If you're looking at me, say amen. amen. He comes back in chapter 19, and then the millennium happens in chapter 20. Pre-millennial. Does this make sense to you guys? And yet half the church, and most of the church for 1,500 years, messed it all up. Why? Because they don't interpret the Bible literally. They interpret it allegorically, which I'll show in a little while is wrong. Number three, premillennialism is a position of the early church. Did you guys know for 300 years after the apostles died, for 300 years, premillennialism was the dominant position of the church. It wasn't until a guy named Augustine, theologian and philosopher, which by the way, said a lot of amazing things, awesome things. But this man, Augustine, he decided to write about a new view about the, the millennium in his book called The City of God. And in this new view, in his book, The City of God, what did he do? He took the promises of God in the Old Testament made to Israel and other promises, he took certain scriptures in the Bible and instead of interpreting them literally, he decided, I'm gonna interpret these things allegorically and the result is the amillennial position. And that to me is very sad. After, the, after Augustine, amillennialism became the dominant position of the church for almost 1,500 years. Even the reformers fell for this. And I'm just wondering out loud that if Augustine didn't take that position and wasn't so influential over the church for 1,500 years, I wonder if anti-Semitism within the church would have decreased greatly because if you're an amillennialist, what you're basically saying is, hey, nation of Israel, God's done with you and we get all your promises. It's no wonder so many Jews have a wall between them and the church. Now, this is, this is what I really hope you get. If you got saved yesterday and you're a brand new Christian, you gotta get number four because this could impact your Christian life until the day you die. And that is the literal method of interpretation and how important that is. In week one, way back in January, I taught the first message in Revelation. I called it Understanding Revelation. And in that message, I talked about two different ways of interpreting the Bible. Here's a quick review. The two ways of interpreting the Bible is either use the literal method or you use the allegorical method. And those two methods are directly opposed to one another. They cannot be reconciled. They are not friends. The allegorical method interprets a biblical text with a goal of finding the secondary meaning. In other words, the plain sense, the literal sense is not good enough. No, we gotta find a secondary sense. We gotta find a more spiritual sense, a more profound, deeper sense. And so guys like me, 
throughout 2,000 years who stand up and say, no, you need to take God's word at face value. Do you know what we're called? We're called carnal, base, unintelligent, because you're not really looking for the, the secondary, more profound meaning. And so here's what they do. They use the allegorical method and they, if you're with me, say amen. They impose an outside idea onto the word of God, and that's dangerous. The literal method of interpretation is simply this. When the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you get nonsense. <laughs> Dr. David L. Cooper, thank you for that statement. Hey, just take it for face value. Interpret the words and discover the original intent of the author. How do you do that? By you, you look at the grammar. How do you do that? You look at the historical context. How do you do that? You keep the verse in its context. Read the verses before, read the verses after. Interpret the whole passage. Don't just take one verse and preach whatever you wanna preach. Okay, that's the literal method of interpretation. Now, this is so important. I've decided to give you an illustration. Since we're talking about the kingdom age, I'm gonna show you the vast difference between the allegorical method and the literal method back in Isaiah chapter two. Please turn left in your Bibles. We're going all the way 700 years before Christ. Now, I love this passage because it's about your future and my future. You wanna know what you're gonna be doing in the next life? It's right here in black and white. Okay, so if you're looking at Isaiah two, say amen. amen. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning who? Yeah, Judah and Jerusalem. Please say Judah and Jerusalem. Yeah. No, verse two, it shall come to pass in the wind. Okay, this is end time prophecy right here that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And how many nations are gonna to flow to it? Verse three, and many peoples are gonna come and they're gonna say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation, thank God for this, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. All right, class. You can answer out loud. From verse one, who is this passage directed to? Yes, Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Does everybody see that, yes or no, in verse one? Yes. Judah and Jerusalem. What is this passage about? It's about the coming kingdom age in the end times. What is gonna happen during this kingdom age? The nations of the world are gonna travel to the mountain of the Lord. What mountain is that? Mount Zion, it says it right there. What is, where's Mount Zion? In Jerusalem. So what's happening? 
nations during the kingdom age are making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. Where are they going in Jerusalem? They're going to the house of the God of Jacob. What is that? That's the temple during the kingdom age. And what's gonna happen when they get there? It says they're gonna be taught by God. Who's that? Jesus. I mean, I can't wait. I can't wait for you guys because you don't have to come listen to me anymore. You can go listen to Jesus preach. You can go listen to Jesus teach and preach the principles of God. It's gonna be an awesome time. Now, that's what the literal plain sense says in Isaiah chapter two. And yet, when some people look at this passage, they cannot accept that literal translation or interpretation. No, because it goes against their amillennial position. So instead of interpreting it literally, they interpret it allegorically. And here's what they do. They impose their own ideas onto the text. How so? Here's what they do. They take the word Israel and they say, no, 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 no. That's not really Israel. That's the church. And so they take the church and they impose it into the text. And then when they read, all nations are flowing to the house of the God of Jacob, they say, you can't take that literally. No, that's Gentiles right now in the church age converting to Christianity and filling up the churches. What have they done? They've changed God's word. We don't get the right to change God's word. Do you see that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you see how important this is? Do you wonder why there's been a wall for 2,000 years such so tall and high between Jew and, and Christians? We say, God's done with you. Your future blessings are for us right now in the church age, and it's an allegorical interpretation, and it's completely wrong. And so, before you join a church, here's an idea. If you ever move away and join another church, here's an idea. Before you go, read their statement of faith. Find out if there's anything in their statement of faith about the second coming of Christ, about what's gonna happen after the second coming of Christ. And if there's nothing on their website, go to the pastor and say, hey, pastor, with all due respect, I have a question for you. Do you believe that the Old Testament promises that God made to Israel a future blessing, do you think that's literally gonna happen in the future? And if he looks at you, And he says, well, come on, you know you can't take all those prophecies literally. Then look at him and say, well, should I take the statement that you just made literally? (laughs) Or should I interpret that allegorically? Maybe I should take my own idea and impose it on your sentence and change it of what you just said. Do you see what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen? In our ordinary conversations with one another, what do we do? We take each other's words at face value. Why do we do something different when it comes to the Bible? Here's why, because it doesn't fit with our preconceived so-called theological position, and that is wrong. You start with the Bible, you interpret it literally, and then you develop your theological system. You don't start with a theological system and then look at the whole Bible through the lens of your theological position. Does that make sense to you guys? This is important. I don't want you to be duped 
and I don't want you to be uh, deceived. You know, here's what happens. People, you know, they don't like Bible preaching and teaching. And so they especially don't like Revelation. And so they make comments like this. Oh, you can't really understand the book of Revelation. Right, so that's why we don't teach it. You can't understand it. And some people even go so far because they don't like God's word because it convicts them of their sin. Oh, you really can't understand the Bible. And so if you ever hear that, then say, okay, I, I, I dare you to employ that line of thinking at work with your boss. And so when your boss tells you to do something, try saying to your boss, oh, I really can't understand what you're saying and see how long you last there. Do you see how crazy this is? Why do we teach, why, why do we treat the Bible any differently? Because there's an enemy out there, his name's the devil, that's why. And he doesn't want us reading, absorbing, and living out the plain sense of his word. Now, six verses today, let's jump in. Chapter 20, verse one. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. I love this. This whole image is awesome. Mighty angel coming down from heaven. He's got this big chain. He's swinging it. He's saying, oh, Lucifer, come here. And what does he do? Verse two, he sees the dragon. Okay, let's stop right there. Everybody look at me. The dragon. Should we interpret that allegorically? No. You should use the literal method of, of interpretation. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm a wooden literalist and I think there's this big dragon coming in the future? No. The, the, the literal method of interpretation says there are figures of speech in the Bible. In fact, I think in Revelation there's 44 figures of speech, and by the way, 22 of them are interpreted in the book of Revelation. The other half are interpreted in other places in the Bible. You and I can understand Revelation. And so, here you have a figure of speech. A dragon, verse two. Okay, who's that? The Bible interprets it in the very next sentence. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the who? The devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? Thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the, what? Were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while, which we're gonna look at next week. And so here we see Satan once again falling and going down. Oh, Lucifer, how art thou fallen? So. Lucifer, the holy perfect angel, became prideful and he got kicked out of heaven sometime in eternity past. He went down. Then Revelation chapter 12, he's being thrown by Michael out of heaven to the earth. He's going down again. Now in chapter 20, we see again this mighty angel, maybe it's Mike, maybe it's not, and he's got this, this chain, he's swinging it. Come on, come here. He's wrapping him up. What is he doing? He's throwing him down again into the bottomless pit, down, down, down. That is the direction for anybody who rebels against God. It's always the direction. God doesn't want it, 
He doesn't will it. But when you and I decide we're gonna rebel against the Lord, we're gonna rebel against his word, just know you're going down. And boyfriend or girlfriend, if you got a significant other and they're rebelling against the Lord and they're rebelling against his word, guess what? They're going down. And as long as you're with them, they're pulling you down too. What should I do, pastor? You drop them like a bad habit and you let them go down. Well, that's not loving. That's not Christian. Okay, just stay with the guy. Be codependent and let him drag you down with him. Do you really wanna do that? No, don't do that, ladies and gentlemen. God's got a better plan for your life. He's got a man of God waiting for you in the future. Guys, he's got a woman of God waiting for you in the future. Don't settle for God's, uh, for less than God's best. Just be patient. And as God brought Eve to Adam, you don't have to go looking. At the right time, he'll bring that person to you. And so Satan going down, down, down into the bottomless pit. What's the bottomless pit? It's the temporary place of incarceration, a place of torment where demons fear to be sent. Now this is not the lake of fire. That's later next week. This is the bottomless pit. This is where Satan is bound for one thousand literal years. Can you imagine life on planet Earth without a devil roaming around? Can you imagine life on planet Earth without a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? It's gonna be absolutely awesome. What a different world it's gonna be. Now look at verse four. It says, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Okay, so John is now seeing thrones. He's seeing people seated on the thrones and they're not only reigning with Christ, but now they're judging with Christ. Who are these people? Here's another verse. You can write it down and read it later. 1 Corinthians 6, two through three. Because 1 Corinthians 6, two through three, Paul says that the saints are going to judge the world and angels. Wow. Did you know that? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, not only are you gonna get a brand new indestructible body, but you're gonna reign with Christ and you're gonna judge with Christ. Who am I gonna judge? The world and angels, no doubt fallen angels. That's 1 Corinthians 6, two through three. And so how does this all work out? Well, you gotta understand that in the inhabitants of the kingdom, there's two different kind of people. There's humans in natural bodies and there's human in resurrected bodies. Okay, and so there's coming a seven year tribulation period where the, the Antichrist is gonna sign a peace treaty with Israel and her neighbors that's gonna kick it off, it's gonna go seven years. All kind of cataclysmic events coming down. Millions of people are wiped out, but some will survive. Those who trusted Christ during the, the tribulation period, guess what? They're walking into the millennial reign of Christ in their natural bodies. The curse has been reversed. It's been lifted. What does that mean? A million things, but one of the things it means is that life will be extended greatly. 
People are gonna live a very long time. They're gonna get married. They're gonna have kids. Those kids, they're gonna repopulate the earth. And those kids are gonna grow up and become adults. And guess what? This is what blows my mind. A lot of those kids who are now adults in the kingdom age, even though Jesus is here personally in Jerusalem, they're gonna say, thanks, but no thanks. And they're gonna need to be governed. Who's gonna govern them? Humans in resurrected bodies. Who's that? That's you if you've trusted Christ. Why? Because you're gonna get a resurrected body and you're gonna rule with Christ and you're going to judge with Christ. Some are gonna rule over five cities. Others are gonna rule over 10 cities. Do you remember that parable by Jesus? And we're gonna judge the world and we're gonna judge angels. Ladies and gentlemen, there's more to this, to this life than this life. And it's gonna be awesome in the future. Every once in a while, you should think about that, of what you're gonna be doing during the kingdom age in a perfect body with the Lord Jesus Christ here in person in this world where all the news, at least the vast majority of it is good news and not bad news. And so that day is coming and we're excited about it. Now look at the last two verses, five and six, and please stay with me all the way to the end. It says that the rest of the dead, I'm sorry, we have to back up to the second half of verse four. It says that those who had not worshiped the beast, this is during the tribulation, or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? Okay, these are the martyred tribulation saints. They get a new body because they, they got killed during the tribulation and now they're in their resurrected bodies, reigning with Christ, judging with Christ. Verse five, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death, I'll explain it next week, has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they're gonna reign with him for how long? <laughs> he says it again, over and over and over. And so if you have trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you believe that the death that he paid on the cross was once for all, if you believe that he paid for your sins and rose again the third day and you've received him as your savior and Lord, guess what? You're gonna be part of the first resurrection and you're blessed and, and you have so much to look forward to in the kingdom age. You say, what do I have to look forward to? Three things and I'm gonna close with this. If you're taking notes, check this out. The first promise during the millennium, Christ is gonna reign. Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for who? David, a righteous branch. What does that mean? David's got some descendants. One of the descendants is Jesus. And he shall reign as what? King. That's the future kingdom age. Not only is Christ gonna reign, there's gonna be global peace. Micah 4.3, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Praise God, I can't wait for that. And then finally, the curse is reversed. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, more than half the church interprets this right here allegorically, but why? Hey, let's just take it literally. Let's see what happens. In the kingdom age, the cow is gonna graze near the bear. Can you see that in your minds? You know, there's, there's the cow, and there's the bear, grizzly bear, and he's not running, he's not chasing. Why? There's peace in the animal kingdom. The cub and the calf are gonna lie down together. The lion is gonna eat hay like a cow. The baby will place, I know this is gonna freak some of you moms out, but the baby is gonna place safely near the hole of the cobra. Okay, so little kids will have pet cobras. Yes, a little child will put his hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. What a different world that's gonna be. And I can't wait for that world to come. So here's what you need to know. One day Jesus is coming back literally to this earth. And when he does, Romans 11:26 says, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? That the Jews right now who reject Jesus as their Messiah, whatever generation when the Lord comes back, when they're there and they see him coming and they see the scars, they're gonna know you were our Messiah all along. And they're gonna put their trust in Jesus, Yeshua, and God's word, he doesn't break his word, all Israel will be saved and the son of David will come and rule over Israel and the world for 1,000 literal years. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. And so prayer partners, please come on forward. Everybody, please stand for closing prayer. Now, maybe you're here today, and man, your life is just taking a wrong turn. And there's a lot of hurt, and there's a lot of pain in your life. I wanna encourage you that as the people of God, we're here for you. And I don't want you to walk out carrying that burden by yourself. And so that's what we have life groups for and that's what we have prayer partners for at the end of every service. Because they would love to join you and lift up your burden before the Lord. The scriptures say, cast your cares on the Lord for he cares for you. And so if you've ever doubted that Jesus loves you, you need to stop doubting today, he loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, he absolutely loves you. So much he died for you on a cross and paid for your sins and rose again. And so if you haven't received Christ as Savior and Lord, do that today. And if you need prayer for anything, come on up and as everyone's leaving and the prayer partners would love to pray over you today. And so Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to keep truth above unity and help us not to compromise your truth. Help us to speak the truth in love because at the end of the day, Lord, 
We don't have to give account to people. We gotta give an account to you. Lord, I pray for this congregation that you'll help them to keep their eyes fixed firmly on you, Jesus, all week long. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at calvarypsl.com. Click on I'm new here, then knowing Christ.